This is launch control. We have cleared the tower. Roger, tower clear. Uh, let her rip, uh, Spider. Oh, God, look at that picture over there. Okay, here, uh, yeah. we've had a problem here. SCE to Ox, Capcom. I was strolling on the moon one day. This is really a rock and roll ride, isn't it? Contact light. I was up till midnight doing that. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. What do we think about the new jingle? I think I think it needs a bit more work. I'll say that first. <laughs> <laughs> before we go it's always dangerous asking for comments I think it, I did it's, a, especially I, for me yes. yeah I did a bit an earlier version but with more sort of grime beat if it's a work in progress well done yes that's that <laughs> so patronising <laughs> well this time we're recording in the library at the British Interplanetary Society so uh, if you can hear a slight buzz that's because it's from a an overhead fluorescent light 1950s light uh, yes it's very 1950s <laughs> and um but this library we've recorded a few podcasts here and it's always rather quaint because it's filled with journals books rather lovely sort of looking models of either planets or space planes that look like they were concept designs from the 1960s. So it's it's a sort of ramshackle, a bit like a sort of space scientist or boffin's brain, really, sort of filled with space stuff. That's the best thing. And I'm sat beside the space and science journalist and writer, and in fact, a former colleague of mine from yeah. the BBC, David Whitehouse. Um, he's the author of Apollo 11, The Inside Story. Which ties in very nicely because we'll be talking about the new Apollo 11 movie, which is out in the UK later this month. We'll also be chatting about Orion, NASA's supersized Apollo spacecraft, which presidential tweets permitting will soon be taking astronauts back to the moon. Uh, David, we've been here before. Uh, I remember doing programmes on the 30th anniversary, we've done the 40th anniversary, but there's so much interest in the 50th anniversary of Apollo. Why, why do you think that is? Well, it's a very special anniversary in the sense that it is a half century, and I think we all know that come the century of Apollo, everybody concerned with it will not be here. So this is probably the last great decadal celebration of the first footprint we can have because we only have four moonwalkers among us now and um, they're getting on. So, you know, it's good that there is this enthusiasm all around the world to um, to bring home to those, you know, only 20% of people alive today were alive when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. So there's 80% of everybody who needs reminding or about this stuff. This This was... This was wonderful. I mean, I lived through it, and uh, I've never gotten over it. And, I like the fact yeah. that you refer to your father uh, <laughs> in terms of when you watched it. Well, yeah, I remember that night. It was a Sunday night, and the BBC had James Burke and Patrick Moore and Sir Bernard Lovell, and ITN decided that they would do more of a uh, light entertainment, so they had their experts, but they also had David Nixon, the magician, and Lenny the Lion, um, and they had quite a different um, approach. So I was hopping between these two channels and they'd landed on the moon and their initial task was to go to sleep. Now, who, who designed that? You land on the moon and you have to go to sleep. That, that wasn't going to work. So they announced that the moon war would take place about three o'clock in the morning our time. Now, my dad was quite strict and he said, well, you can see it in the morning. And I said, I'm sorry, Dad, <laughs> but this, this is history. And eventually let me stay up and that, 
you know, those tiny, low-resolution black-and-white screens, those ghostly images, that, you know, that's one small step, to witness that as it happened. Because nobody knew what Armstrong was going to say. In fact, he says he didn't know what he was going to say until quite late. And so when he leant to the left and put his foot on the, on the, on the moon, uh, off the, uh, the LEM pad, there was that instant when we thought, what are you going to say, what are you going to say? And I remember the adrenaline in me. What is he going to say? And then when he said his famous words, I thought, I can tell my kids I watched that live. And uh, that's never left me, and that's influenced my personal and professional career ever since. I have to say, of the three people here, um, <laughs> only, <laughs> only two-thirds of you were around. Um, well, nothing to boast about. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm very sorry, commiseration. <laughs> no, because I do feel, like, to some extent, I, no, I have missed out, because my first memory of space was Skylab. Yeah. So I was actually born in 1969. So I was born in September 1969. So my first memory is Skylab. Um, and, and that was extraordinary because you got the, these people just floating around in this vast space, and that was space to me. But the moon landing has always seemed, even someone is born in 1969, as as something for a, a previous generation. Yeah, I tell my kids that our generation, and if I include myself as the, I don't really include myself as the people who built the moon rockets, but I was around, that subsequent generations have let them down in the sense that. We, as you said earlier, we haven't gone back to the moon. We've dillied and dallied for 50 years about going back to the moon. We haven't got onto Mars. Do you remember in 1969, Spiro Agnew, uh, vice president, said, uh, oh, we'll be on Mars by 1984. Well, there was no chance of that. And I think that what have the new generations, the internet generations, what have they lived through that is as momentous and changing as Apollo, and I scratch my head, I can't think of it. Well, I would say going by our teenage son and his friends, <laughs> and in fact, I was talking to a woman recently, and she said her teenage daughter and their friends, the thing that made the biggest impression was putting that red sports car in orbit, and that was <laughs> SpaceX. So actually, I think the things that are making an impression today are of a slightly different not, not exactly Style. for all mankind, no. though, is it? <laughs> with, with me, it was John Young taking a corned beef sandwich up into Gemini. <laughs> that got into the controls, didn't it? It did, it yeah. did. He got told off for that. <laughs> We're going to stick, though, with uh, Apollo 11, not least because it's, it's your book, but because of the big anniversary coming. And uh, before we discuss the movie that's uh, about to be released about this, let's hear an extract from the trailer. I'd like to know what you feel uh, as far as the responsibilities of representing mankind on this trip. That's uh, relatively difficult to, to answer. Uh, it's a job that, that we collectively said that to, was possible and we could do. And, and of course, that the nation itself is backing us. So we just sincerely hope that we measure up to that. A glimpse there or an oral glimpse of the new Apollo 11 movie. Now, the film team worked very closely with NASA, and what's extraordinary is that they found unseen 70mm footage and uncovered more than 11,000 hours of uncatalogued audio recordings. So, although... It's an old story. It feels like you've seen something fresh and new. Now, Richard and I have both seen it at, at a screening on separate occasions. It's fair to say we were blown away 
by it. Uh, but after my screening, I got to speak to Apollo 11's director, Todd Miller, and the archive producer, Stephen Slater. And I began by asking Todd how long the film had been in the making for him. Well, I think practically speaking, it was uh, it was about three years, a little under three years. But um, you know, I, I kind of feel like I've been in uh, NASA training for this uh, my whole life. I grew up in Ohio. Uh, I mean, I'm, a, I'm you know I've lived in New York for a long time, but uh, that's Ohio is the same state as Neil Armstrong, John Glenn, the birthplace of aviation. And you know, you can't walk down the street and not hear those names. And you know, uh, uh, all those iconic uh, hear about all those iconic missions uh, like Apollo 11. What made you decide to tell it in a format that didn't involve a narration, that a voiceover or, or anything like that, and purely use existing footage? Well, uh, it goes back, actually, Steve and I both worked on um, a short film uh, about the last manned mission to the moon, uh, Apollo 17. Um, and we experimented with that uh, uh, form, um, just using all archival um, you know, it's a throwback uh, technique. Uh, it's one I'm a fan of, you know, uh, even before... I like it too, but it feels not old-fashioned because your film isn't old-fashioned. Right. But it does feel old school. Right, as yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I've been a fan of these uh, large format films, uh, and this was before we even had the large format um, stuff, but uh, we always knew we wanted to have an IMAX release even when it was 16 and 35 millimeter. Uh, but it goes back to uh, uh, the narrative uh, films from the, the late 50s, early 60s. Not necessarily the big uh, large format films like Ben-Hur and Lawrence of Arabia, those are fine, but there was all these really great uh, short form uh, films that were um, uh, made for expo science centers etc that uh, a lot of times used um, really innovative techniques like split screens uh, you know uh, parallel storylines fractured narrative etc and um, I was always a fan of that um, and of course with uh, some of this iconic imagery um, you just want to get out of the way of it you know uh, my favorite films are the ones where you don't necessarily see the fingerprints of the filmmaker um, and they just let the, the footage and the material speak for itself and then well, there's the other thing is that a lot of I often feel with these documentaries that if there's someone missing or it's hard to do a definitive feeling sort of I'm not saying that this is definitive but if it obviously feels a, definitive a lot of a lot of astronauts have, have died and, and controllers and it, I mean it, it, there have been examples where that kind of film has been done well but I think it, it's a very high bar to sort of to do that well I think the thing that makes it stand out um, other than the way in which it's been directed in the story itself is obviously the footage in terms of what you've you've found and, and used. Stephen, did most of that fall to you in terms of finding all that footage or getting it together? Uh, well, I actually had an existing kind of collection and expertise in the 16mm archive, so that's the, a lot of that's the film you see that's shot in Mission Control. And in particular, I'd been... I, I'd undertaken this crazy project to synchronise audio to the Mission Control um, footage. So that was... Basically, it was all shot completely mute. These guys were just going around filming B-roll, as you would call it. Um, and there was no sound recordist. And so this material was just all lumped together on, on reels. And I wanted to be able to see the controllers actually speaking and see the moments that things happened. So that was something I began in my own time, as it were, before this project. Wow, that's um, a labour of love. It, <laughs> to a, say the least. Yeah, it's um, so. So actually, I um, and I said to Todd, oh, we've got all this. I have all this, and and that could be useful for 
for a film. But it was so probably initially my task or our task was to try and find all the highest resolution versions of this material which we knew existed. And then several months into the project, we or four months, it was actually in May 2017, we got an email from the head of the National Archives Motion Picture Division saying we found all this 70 millimeter film, says Apollo 11, on the reels, 165 reels. Do we think this, this this could take your project in a different direction? Um, you know, why are you interested? And that, that's like Willy Wonka, Charlie, and the Charlie. You've got the golden ticket. Well, Tom can probably t- tell the story of when we, you know, that day. Well, we yeah, it, it was actually it was exciting, but um, we still didn't know exactly what was on it because the reels themselves uh, just had you know Apollo Eleven labeling on them. Uh, very little direction. Uh, we uh, thought that they were, um, you know, fairly pristine quality, um, but uh, it wasn't really until uh, we got uh, some some reels tested at, at our facility up in New York, our post production facility, uh, Final Frame, and um, you know, it was just a confluence of uh, circumstance. I mean, they they were working on uh, uh, developing some newer technology with a film scanner. Uh, when a lot of companies are getting rid of their film scanners, so. Uh, to take this large volume of not only the, the the large format stuff, but also all the 16 and 35, the lower uh, format, um, and utilize it uh, or, or have the ability to uh, scan it and digitize it, and then uh, you know we could utilize it um, was really groundbreaking. Uh, there was one prototype scanner built on the planet specifically for this project. Um, but when we first saw those first images, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm speechless to even describe, you know, what we were seeing. Um, and we thought, you know, it would be a few reels of this, but, you know, every day it was, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it just kept going on and on and on. It was I, I must admit, it, it, it's hard from a v- viewer to know which is, you know which is the the old stuff in that You've seen it so often that you you recognise it. It's hard to tell which is the new stuff because you actually see the old stuff so often everywhere. You are not sure, was this around then, but it was maybe only shown a couple of times and it's new to me. Uh, Or is it brand new? Because the scenes of people, just those very long and you let it breathe to see people's faces, so you can examine what they're wearing, which makes you feel as if you're among the crowd because the colour's very vibrant, the fashions are enjoyable to watch as well. But then some of those tracking or panning shots when you are following the astronauts indoors as they're walking along a corridor or whether it's tracking along a mission control, they, for me, were sort of standouts because they weren't... I hadn't seen them as often. Yeah, well, well, actually, uh, there was a, a film called Moonwalk One was made. Uh, NASA hired a quite avant-garde director called Theo Kameka to, to document the first moon landing. And they used we knew that they'd used these 70mm crews to film that. But all, that, all we'd seen before was the finished film. Hadn't so seen the whatever Russians. they'd used, yeah. So, I, and as... as my understanding, because I worked on a remastering of Moonwalk One ten years ago, is what we <laughs> what we now know was not the best material. But uh, we thought that they'd been destroyed, and so actually, when we first heard about the the seventy mil, I thought, oh, okay, it must it's got to be something to do with Moonwalk One. So basically, if 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 there's something that you had seen before, it's probably because it was in Moonwalk One. But but even then, it, they cropped no, it it, they cropped they cropped it. I mean, you you 
and Todd probably knows the technicalities of, of this, where, where they, they cropped the material down, hadn't they? So. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, the Moonwalk 1 footage was one aspect, but yeah, the release of Moonwalk 1, it was, uh, they actually released it on 35 millimeter, you know, um, but, uh, and we had some prints of that, of that film, several prints, um, that, uh, had the actual, you know, not to get too technical, but the inner positives that were made and some of the contact, uh, prints with the matting on it, but, um, that was one facet of it, and, I mean, we just, it was just luck that, you know, uh, those reels existed, but then we also had a, an entirely different set of reels um, that were uh, made by these NASA working cameramen um, that worked for Technicolor Lab down there. Uh, it's quite extraordinary. And then also um, some uh, a different flavor of large format. All those great slow motion uh, shots of the rocket taken off that people are very familiar with. Um, over the years, we got the whole lot of those out of you know Marshall Space Flight Center and, and scanned all those, and it's a very specialized version of 70 millimeter. Uh, it's called military grade one, uh, and uh, luckily we had the technology to be able to transfer that when you know there's very few. Uh, uh, very few scanners on the planet that can you, handle You must it. be very pleased with the reception so far because, it, I mean, I, I loved it. It felt fresh. It felt new. It felt immersive as well. Yeah, um, I, I think just as fans of, you know, uh, space, um, all of us, the whole team, um, you know, and I've, I've worked with the same guys for so long, um, the same people, um, same companies, you know, so we all uh, are, I feel like, you know, um, we all just really stepped up to the plate on this one. Um, everybody, uh, you know, felt an immense responsibility, um, just not, you know, to get the film right, but also... Uh, to affect the historical record. Um, you know, we were working very closely with NASA's uh, chief historian, Bill Berry, um, and his office, uh, the National Archives, of course, and the curation and the preservation of these materials. Um, and that work will continue for years to come. Um, I think it's incumbent, uh, you know, on all of us uh, that, that get to, you know, have the pleasure of making films like this uh, uh, to, um, you know, uh, it's our small, it's our, you know, duty to, you know, uh, uh, inform the properly informed the canon of, you know, Apollo and, and, and space film. So, yeah, was, I'm, I, I mean, we started off just to make it about something we wanted to, you know, be proud of 20 years from now. But They're the best projects, aren't they? Yeah. That's, it's a sort of labor of love, but it's also a private passion, isn't it? It is, yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah. And any more plans, Stephen, to, you know, do your little, oh, I'll sync this audio with that film, and then who knows what's going to happen in five, ten years' time? Well, there's an awful lot Just of... to give me advance notice, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you could, I mean, you could do it for a lot of the Apollo, Apollo missions, um, but I'm, I mean, come July 21st, I'm going on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe, maybe for the 60th anniversary we'll do something. Yeah. And, and, um, and what I finally must congratulate you on is that it, it felt to me, although it's not a drama in, in terms of fictionalised like the Apollo 13 movie... When you watch Apollo 13, even though you know the you know the outcome, you still find yourself invested and worried. Oh, is it going to survive? I actually felt this way with Apollo 11. You actually feel nervous at times. Um, yeah, you and me both. That's uh, you know, unlike the other films we've done. No offense against them. Uh, there are babies too, but you know, once you kind of get out in the festival circuit or it gets in theaters, you know, you you might go watch it once, maybe twice, but. This one, we go to every single screening. I mean, you'll probably see me in the back of, you know, the cinema if you turn around. I just, 
I get something new out of it every time. Uh, our whole team, you know, that uh, that put to, put the thing together, um, we all kind of feel the same way. We we sit through, you know, all these screenings, and we we just can't get enough of it. Yeah, I, I felt I, I actually went to the. Uh, Sundance Festival we had the premieres and I think it was maybe the second screening just uh, some of the shots of recovery which are some of my favourite in in the because again it's 70mm film when when the astronauts are being winched out of the the capsule I just felt incredibly incredibly emotional seeing that with Matt's our composer Matt Morton's done this amazing soundtrack and it just yeah (laughs) it was amazing (laughs) Stephen Slater and Todd Miller Apollo 11 is out in UK cinemas from June the 28th. I actually think I'll probably go and see it again, but in IMAX. Yeah, I think it'd be fantastic in IMAX. <laughs> Seven, I mean, it's, it's filmed in 70mm. Uh, uh, David, I mean, you were mentioning about the TV, these ghostly pictures of TV. And what's extraordinary about this movie is they're using 70mm film. I was, I was thinking about this, and 70mm film, I and mean, it's kind of the apex of film technology. We've not really gone better than that. So this material they got in the film is as good as you're ever going to see, Apollo. It looks like it was filmed yesterday but we're so used to seeing these these grainy ghostly sometimes upside down Mm. black and white white images and this suddenly brings it brings it much closer like it's gone from black and white it's that bit in the wizard of oz when it goes from black and white (laughs) to glorious technicolor that's what this feels like i know you haven't seen it but i'm assuming it's on your list of things to do oh certainly there are there have been you know, as we know, as we all know, there have been rumours for years and years and years about archive material because um, you must have, like me, tried to get stuff out of NASA archives. And it's not the best organised of archives, <laughs> to be honest. No. And uh, they often find things in filing cabinets, in drawers, in boxes that are not catalogued, that somehow somebody told you that this existed. Um, and I think if they've got hold of this stuff, as they said, they've got hold of the 70 millimeter. It's It amazed me at the time when you could go to the cinema and see in the same summer 2001 A Space Odyssey in high definition on the screen in front of you. And yet when it came to even the pictures of the launch and the training, you had these much degraded, much poorer images of, of the astronauts. Oh, not on this film. No, well, that is brilliant, and I'm really looking forward but to seeing it. But I think we're so used to The stuff that gets recycled and the stuff that we see yeah. on TV all the time is TV archives... So it's right. rubbishy video or maybe 16mm, but not the original 16mm prints. So suddenly you're getting this really good stuff. I mean, I've, I'm a, I've become, uh, inadvertently, something of an expert on uh, the audio archive, just because we just get through so many uh, programs on Apollo and space history. And it's a fantastic audio ar- archive out there. But as these guys found, none of it's properly catalogued. Often it, it will it's be catalogued. It will say things yeah. like audio... Two five one three. Yes, and that's it. But that doesn't necessarily tally to the number that's in the PDF document no, that goes along with it. No, it's not in order, it. and uh, it's not labelled yeah. whether it's a press conference or it's mission control audio or it's from the inside the spacecraft audio or anything. So, but you I have, have to, to say they have done an amazing. They have done an amazing yeah. job, and actually, one yeah. of the people who's credited in this film, who we've interviewed on the podcast, Greg Wiseman at NASA, has been in charge of the digitising the audio, and it's just the phenomenal work they've done. But they've kind of done it in this spare time you know what i did with the audio is that uh, um a short while ago is you, you know there's this argument which isn't really an argument but whether armstrong said for a man yes yeah, yeah, yeah and you get people saying that oh well he said it but too quickly for you to hear and if you listen to the audio he did not say it you can actually with this better quality audio you can properly analyze the spectra and there's an a further in the sentence and you can see that that's 
spectra, the audio spectra that is not present in any shape or form. So he thought he might have said it, he planned to say it, but it was for man, not for a man. What's your take on that then, on those, those, first, those first words, and then what they said on the, the moon, it, moon itself? I mean, it, it was that all out of, of Armstrong's mind? Was it all things that he was thinking about what he was going to say? Well, I think a lot of people I've spoken to over the years have said they weren't um, surprised that Armstrong said something poetic, um, but they perhaps were surprised that Armstrong said something at all because he was um, such a tacit... As you heard from that clip... He was so laid back, so taciturn, so mundane that um, it was remarkable that he said that. He said he thought about it mostly during the trip out to the moon. Uh, but it was fitting. It was, it was remarkable. And Armstrong in his later years um, said that, um, I think it was Wilbur Wright, has a quote that the only bird that can fly and talk is a parrot. And he said he felt like a parrot because a parrot doesn't talk very well, doesn't fly very well, but it can talk. He said, I fly very well. I mean, landing the LEM was the greatest feat in aviation history. But he didn't talk that great. I mean, he had celebrity. He had uh, charisma and mystique. But he wasn't, in most circumstances, the greatest orator. He turned up, he did his bit, he inspired, but... Um, he wasn't a poet. wasn't a poet or a philosopher. You say that, but I love this bit. And in fact, I even yeah. marked it on page six where you quoted, um, you say he, people called him the quiet aviator. But in 2000, he summed up his own character as, I am and ever will yes. be a white socks, pocket protector, nerdy engineer, born under the second law of thermodynamics, steeped in steam tables, in love with free body diagrams, transformed by Laplace and propelled by compressible flow. Now, I think that is poetry. It, yes, you're quite right. In his, in his reticent, self-effacing way, he hit on something there. And that was said at um, an engineering conference. And he brought the house down. And quite rightly, there was, he had his moments. Um, but remember, of course, he was chosen because he was a pilot. Uh, and that was the main thing. They... they all this business about what he will say, uh, indeed, how he would approach and deal with life after he came back, none of that was considered. In fact, uh, as you know, they had a big battle to get television cameras on Apollo 11. I mean, nowadays, if it happened, when it happens again, the whole place will be full of webcams and we'll watch everything from every direction live. In those days, they thought the landing is the big thing. If the television camera gets in the way, get rid of the television camera. He was a remarkable chap. What I like about um, what, how you've written about Apollo 11 is you haven't just gone straight in on the landing. You've, d you've done the history, but also you've used your journalistic career because you started off as an astronomer yeah. and then you became a, a journalist, ended up a BBC science correspondent and, and editor, and you've incorporated your notebooks, your... Uh, which I understand from me yeah. writing about Wally Funk. It was the same. Yeah. I had, you know, notes from 20 years ago. Yeah. And you, you, I think most journalists find things very difficult to throw things away. Exactly. And then all of a sudden you don't realise 20 years later how useful these are. And, and that for you meant quite a lot of important people that you've interviewed. Yeah. It, I didn't want to write a book about Apollo, actually, um, because... Uh, you know, it's an anniversary and everybody else is writing about it. And as we know, when somebody else buys a book about Apollo that's not yours, they're not going to buy your own book. Mm. 
But my agent talk, talked me into it, and she said, you know this stuff. Um, you must have something in your loft. And so I, I had four or five really big boxes in the loft, taped up, marked Apollo. And I'd forgotten what was in them. I mean, tapes, um, press kits, things written on the back of envelopes. Since I started taking an interest in Apollo from when I was an astronomer, I realised that I'd met every moonwalker. In fact, everybody had gone to the moon, some much better than others. And as you know, when you do an interview with them as a journalist, you usually get the same old stuff that they've told a hundred journalists before. And it's the bits in the beginning and the end and when you stop the interview and, and when you're talking more casually that, um, that give you the bits that are different from everybody else. So I had a lot of that stuff which didn't go into an interview because that's not necessarily what a you broadcaster want wants exactly. either. Yeah, yeah we want the not sa- in news anyway. That's right. We want the sound bites. Yeah. We want the the, but everything else. And so often, if I'd interview an, an astronaut, or if there was an astronaut or an administrator or a politician in town, we'd go out for lunch or dinner, and I had a whole load of notes I hadn't used, and I thought. I was trying to think of a way to write an Apollo book that wasn't like everybody else. Because, you know, most Apollo books are, they took off on such and such a date. They went into this type of orbit and they pressed the button to go into translunar orbit. They entered the moon. You know, it's descriptive, it's technical, but it didn't have any soul. So what I thought, the only way to get to write it newsy, in a newsy, pacey way, was to write like a film, in the sense that you have lots of people talking. So I had to find the people talking, get their quotes and make sure they fitted into some sort of narrative from beginning to end. And I think that gives it a, a more intimacy and a more It does, it form. does, yeah. And that's, that's really what I was interested in mm. because I wasn't interested in writing another Man on the Moon by Chaikin, which is a or, wonderful or, book. I don't want a technical manual either. Yeah, yeah. I am interested, and I think most human beings are, they want a narrative, they want a story, they want to know about the people. That's right. I mean, for instance, in that book, the Apollo, 11, Apollo 1 fire, when three astronauts um, in a plugs-out test lost their lives, there's a sizzling quote from Wally Sherrard, who said, who said, they shouldn't have done this. They were idiots. They had go fever. Um, Gus Grissom knew that he had go fever. He had complained about the dangerous capsule he was using, but still he went on because he didn't want to fall out of favour and lose his chance to be the first man on the moon. And they died in a Uh, a fire that should never have happened. It was quotes like that and quotes from Armstrong who said that um, the Apollo 1 fire gave them more time. We didn't want it. You know, (laughs) it it was quotes like that which for me made the book a more interesting write than if it was a chronology of missions. And I think you're right. I think people, people like to hear words from those who were there Bearing their soul in many cases. Mm. And, but not the words that we've all heard before. Yeah, you've got, I mean, you've got to include mm. the, the famous bits. But for me, this, this was um, enjoyable to find, um, to, find to, to put together clips from different people on the same subject at the same time to see how different people saw it. Like, um, like Kennedy giving his great speeches. You know, we choose to go to the moon, or I believe this nation, you know, all that great business. And then there was about 10 years ago released some audio from the presidential archives of President Kennedy where James Webb um, was in a meeting with him. And you have to listen very carefully. It's not very well recorded. But James Webb hits the table and says, we can do this for $10, $10 billion. Now, he'd been told that they could do it for $3 billion. 
and he'd been told, ask for five. He goes into the President of the United States, says, we can do it for ten. And, and that, you know, that throws some light onto Kennedy, who was a bit reticent at the time. Uh, James Webb had the idea of doing loads of things with that ten billion, but Kennedy wanted to say, look, just Apollo. And there was a row between them when um, Webb said, well, we can do this, that and the other, all planetary probes. And Kennedy said, no, Apollo, Apollo, Apollo. And it was getting into that. And, and a few years later, when NASA was in crisis, because they, they didn't know how to manage this project. How do you? Who tells you how to manage the project? So they brought in a lot of people from the Polaris missile project, which was superbly managed, and they rescued NASA. So it's all these... You could write, as you know, you could write 100 books with different quotes and a different thread through it. You know, I hope I produce one which is readable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've done quite well actually because we've. I think the 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 few books that we feature on our podcast have to be bloody good, basically. We get sent so many books. Yeah, yeah. they have to be good, and yeah. yours has made it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're recording at the British Interplanetary Society, and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Find us on all your usual social media platforms, and you can also email us info at boffinmedia.co. UK. Um, I'm just going to get a quick plug in here for a program that I made recently. Uh, it's called 10987. It's a documentary for the World Service. You can find it on podcasts, on the BBC website, all the rest of it. It is quite difficult to Google, though, because you basically have to type in BBC and then 10, 9, 8, 7. Uh, the, the commissioner who commissioned it thought he was being really clever. So it sounds great on air, 10987. But... And congratulations for message from the moon, by the way, because that was uh, finalist in the New York festivals radio awards i know that's a very good program as well in fact that ties in with a lot of what david was saying about just getting an emotional response from astronauts and trying to get answers that you've not heard a zillion times before i remember um years and years ago decades ago going to a party in houston and um i got my burger and my salad and they said there's nowhere to sit there go and, go and sit over there next to the pool with your feet in the pool and I sat down with my feet in the pool eating my burger and I looked to my right and there was a, a guy very coolly eating his salad uh, with his burger, feet dabbling in the pool and I said, you, and he said, John Young, nice to meet you. Ah, now my <laughs> John Young story. Because <laughs> uh, I, I, was, I was kind of naive, young BBC reporter. Aren't we all? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Not so, just not so young now. I was at, I was at Houston in the the press office um, doing interviews. I can't remember what the program was about. Probably the thirtieth anniversary of Apollo, and I, they didn't quite get that I was how a radio program worked or what sort of things I wanted. So, oh, we've got this guy you might want to speak to, uh, John Young, because um, he was still working there. So yeah. this must be you know kind of twenty twenty odd years ago, still working there. He came in, and I hadn't prepared to be interviewing an Apollo astronaut. I hadn't briefed myself. I wasn't, you know, familiar. Now he's a complete hero uh, to me. Um, and, you know, I asking the usual questions about what it's like to walk on the moon and all that yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. and it just getting nothing back. And then I just thought, oh, I'll ask a question about computers. And that set him off. And he was so into the technical side of it and the technology and the engineering side what you were talking about with with neil armstrong and it was that challenge of trying to get a rather emotional response but he's this the coolest guy he was he's the astronaut's astronaut yeah you're quite right you hit on a good point there because these guys ever since they've been to me for 50 years some of them 
um, have been asked the same questions. What's it like to walk on the moon? You know, what's it like to go to the toilet in space? Um, and that's not the questions that they like. Um, I, Gene Cernan summed it up well at Armstrong's funeral when he said that the people who went to the moon are forever strangers. They've broken the familiar matrix of life and they just can't seem to put it back together again. And they fall into the stock answer, the stock phrase. And they're more interesting, when, as you say, when you delve a little bit deeper because it tells us something about humanity, about how these people coped with coming back from the moon as well as the tremendous triumph of going there. Well, that's why I remember a few years ago, actually, we had Buzz Aldrin interview on the, for the podcast and I was getting the same very, very... You know, you've heard it before, but it was deeply, deeply, overly technical, all about his cyclic orbits to Mars and back. And the bit where I broke through, because he wasn't making eye contact. And as a reporter to you, that's when you know you've lost someone and they're just saying what they've memorised or mm. have done before, was his ring kept knocking on the table like this. And I said to him, well, you know, oh, that's, I'd better say for the audience, that's your ring knocking uh, in the background. And his fingers have massive gold rings on both hands, on the fingers on both of his hands. And I said, oh, what's what's that ring? And all of a sudden he flipped and went from monotone buzz mm. to interested buzz because I was asking him about his rings. And through asking him about his rings, we got more of an insight into what it was like to be an astronaut and the level of fame and his background, because one was from his father. So that immediately oh, told his you... His father was a yeah, driving force yeah. in his life. So you saw, well, he's still wearing that. One ring was uh, from MIT, so it gave you an idea of what he placed as important. But then there was another ring that was from Muhammad Ali, had a massive diamond in, and had Muhammad Ali had had it engraved with his name and Buzz Aldrin's name. So that gave you an extent of how an engineer at MIT who worshipped his father was suddenly fated by the heavyweight champion of the world and was being given this enormous diamond ring. And that, for me, was the best part of an interview. It was about a minute and a half mm. long, and I will never forget that bit as a result yeah. of it. I remember sitting in a hotel room with uh, Alan Shepard. Uh, this was 40 years ago. And he'd come to do some Scottish space festival. And I was talking to him and we weren't getting anywhere. I was getting the usual, you know, me and my um, race with Gagarin and all this business. Uh, and then I asked him a question about his illness. I asked him a question about whether or not when he goes to sleep at night and closes his eyes, is he still on the moon? And they're right, that's when they realise you're not just after the soundbite. You're not just another one in a long line of, uh, of news media who, who want, want a bit from him. You're actually really interested in, in, in this person. And when, I think a lot of them, when they see that, they do, they do show the depths that they, I suppose many of them try to conceal, you know, when, it, when they deal with... And that's why your program's great, because you get behind the headlines. <laughs> you, know, you, you know, if you, you're asking questions like that of Buzz, is, is brilliant. Oh, thank you. thank you. I must say, though, there was one bit that I was really quite pleased to read about because I'd never heard about it. I'm particularly interested in women in space. And you mentioned that there was this NASA artist, Cecilia Bibby, the only woman who'd gone up Pad 14 at Cape Canaveral for Project Mercury. That was just a beautiful... For me, that was a beautiful little snippet there of information. Yes, she was She was painting the picture of the girl, wasn't she, on the uh, 
on one of the Mercury on Friendship Fr- Seven. Friendship Seven, exactly. And of course, NASA didn't like this. They thought this was terrible. Um, but you have to say, one thing that impresses me with the astronauts is that they know their mind. They stick together, um, and it, it, NASA's history is full of astronauts not backing down when when the management says you must do this. And they point out that they're the ones. I mean, John Glenn was putting his life on the line. He nearly died. I was quite shocked reading that. I hadn't quite realised how fraught that mission was. There was a time when they did not know if he would make it back alive. And he, and he said, I'm putting my life on the line. If I want a picture of a scantily clad woman on the outside of my capsule, remember this was the 60s, <laughs> um, then I'm going to get it. And if you don't let the artist come up, I'm going to escort her up there and watch her as she paints. Good lad. Well, according to NASA, Americans will be back on the moon by 2024, which... Uh, Seems ambitious, to say the least. Uh, The spacecraft that will take them there, take astronauts there, is Orion. And just like Apollo, when it returns from the moon at 25,000 miles an hour, it'll splash down in the ocean. We have splashdown, splashdown confirmed at 10.29 a.m. Central Time. Orion is back on Earth. America has driven a golden spike as it crosses a bridge into the future. Since that uncrewed test flight in 2014, the agency's been working out the best way to recover the astronauts and spacecraft. When I visited the Kennedy Space Centre recently, I saw the capsule they've been using for the tests and spoke to Melissa Jones, the NASA Landing and Recovery Director. So right now we are in a high bay at the LETF, which is a facility at Kennedy Space Centre, and we're looking at the crew module training article which we are currently modifying so that when we start to get ready for crewed missions after EM-1, that we can train the um, Department of Defense to recover our astronauts. This is almost like a giant garage, I think. It's just a very high white room. And at the center, almost right in the center, is this space capsule. Now, this is a it's a mock-up, but actually part of it is flown in space. Yes, it's a mock-up that we've used for testing. You know, when NASA does any kind of missions, we always do incremental testing, right? So this capsule has done uh, drop tests. It's done modal testing, vibra- vibration and acoustical testing. But the heat shield, which you're referring to, actually flew on EFT-1, which was the exploration flight test one that we launched and landed in December of 2014. And now you're going to be using this to train crew once they come back to Earth. So they've been in this... I mean, you know, it's bigger than Apollo, but it's still quite a cramped spacecraft for, well, two, three weeks. They come back to Earth, they splash down in the ocean, and you've got to get them out. So first of all, when the crew comes back, because they've been in a microgravity environment, we assume that they're deconditioned, and that means different things for different people. But what that means for us on the ground is that we are not relying on the crew members to do anything to get themselves out. Okay, Some of them will be fine to get themselves out. So we use the Department of Defense, uh, the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force, to go into the capsule and pull the astronauts out. And in order for them to do that, they have to be able to train on something that is close enough to the real crew module to know what do they have to disconnect, how do they get the astronauts out. And ultimately, that's what the crew module training article is for. And what, I mean, you mentioned deconditioned. It's a very very spacey NASA word. (laughs) Um, What, in in reality, I mean, that... You know, even just coming sort of coming down through re-entry at you know phenomenal mm-hmm. speeds and much faster than has been done for a long time, mm-hmm. they're going to be pretty shaken up, 
and potentially seasick as well once they smash down. Yeah, so I've never had that experience myself, so I cannot speak to it. But I cannot imagine experiencing speeds like that and then a quick stop when you hit the water and then bobbing around inside of an enclosed capsule that has no air flow or anything like that. So we are we are trying to get to them as quick as we can and get the door open so that they can see the horizon and so they can be reoriented to being back on Earth. And, and this, although it's a, a model, you're going to fit it out inside, so it, it, it will feel to those experiencing this and training in this that it's like a real capsule. Yeah, so our requirements are to make sure that the form, what, what they touch inside and the fit, so the representative space that's available and the function, like if there's a switch that they have to power down the vehicle with or a seatbelt that they have to disengage, they should be just like they would have in the crew module. Um, otherwise, we're, we want to train like we fly, and a part of doing that is making sure that this capsule, this test article, has the high enough fidelity that that's a positive thing and not negative training. So you're going to take this out, put it in the ocean with, what, four people inside, four astronauts inside, mm-hmm. and then try and get them out? Yes, sir. So if we have, it depends on what the mission is, but if we have four astronauts, we'll have four seats, and we will train just like we would recover them. We'll put them in um, prototype suits, and we'll connect them to mock-up connections, right? We won't have, like, coolant flowing through their system to keep them cool, but we'll have the right QD connection and the the right length of the umbilical. And we'll have guys that crawl in and disengage their suits, pull them out of their seats, and actually egress them out of the capsule um, and put them in a, a small boat or in a helicopter and take them to the ship. So what is the plan now for recovery? Because they're going to be, they're going to want to get out of this, I would have thought, fairly soon after arriving back on Earth. Yeah, so um, so we're a little bit different. So a lot of people know Apollo. Apollo uh, landed in the water and they were recovered with a crane onto an aircraft carrier. So we're a little bit different uh, because of how the capsule's design is larger and it doesn't have the same lifting apparatus on the top. So we use a well-deck ship. It is um, a Navy... Um, amphibious vehicle that has kind of like a giant swimming pool in the back and a stern gate comes down and floods the swimming pool and we connect the crew module to lines and we pull it in and we egress the crew now when we were that was our baseline um, but for flexibility we've also developed an open water recovery method that will allow the crew to get out faster if they're not feeling well Um, we can inflate a stabilization collar which is like a big raft that's rigid that allows our recovery forces to stand on top of it and pull the crew out Um, and I believe that will allow us to do it a little bit faster but we wanted the flexibility if we land in really high sea states and we're concerned about water getting in the hatch then we might choose to bring the the capsule into the well deck and get the astronauts out there so we actually have two methods for recovery both are considered nominal both of them will meet all of our requirements and the team's been working really hard on testing all the hardware for both of them. I've spoken to a few Apollo astronauts, and many of them talk about getting seasick just in the Apollo capsule. Yes. So, um, like I said, I don't have any experience with that myself, but even when we do testing in the open water with a, a different article that we have in Houston, there are many of our test subjects that report that they are not feeling well, that they get sick, especially if they can't see the horizon. So one of the things we're putting in this, we're putting windows in this, Um, which the capsule will also have windows, but we're hoping that that's going to help a little bit with that seasickness. But yes, I can't imagine, you know, bobbing inside of a closed space with no no sounds, no wind. You can't see the horizon. It's got to be very disorienting. 
I mean, it's also going to be quite unpleasant in there, isn't it, after two or three weeks away with three other people? I would imagine it, it probably is hot. I don't know, it probably doesn't smell the best. I, I would, you'd have to ask a flight crew member about that. Um, so, I mean, looking at it now, obviously it's, it's flat and it's stable and it's in, in this building. I mean, there's no guarantee it's going to land this way up or splash down this way up is it i mean what if it it tumbles over or gets knocked by a wave or something like that that is true in fact um if you look at the statistics about 50 percent of the time apollo would would actually the parachutes pull will pull it over and so we have something called a crew module uprighting system that will inflate on the top and will upright it so there's really three orientations of the capsule stable one means that it's sitting like it's supposed to in the water stable two means it's completely upside down but that requires a complete failure of the uprighting system and then stable three is when you have a partial failure of the uprighting system and it's kind of listing sideways a little bit so we actually will train for all of those cases so we have to be prepared to respond to them in the event that something like that happens so we don't expect it to um, but you have to plan for it how do the astronauts treat these this sort of training because i imagine that they're pretty a lot of them are pilots or they're all you know are trained to fly they're pretty cool about going into flying and going into space but how do they react to water um they seem to do very well with i I think they're more um (laughs) we are more cautious than they are right so we're kind of like okay they're they're ready they're gone ho they are they are definitely excited and we're trying to make sure we got all the safety things that we need to have done and that we have the right approvals and that kind of stuff. But they're definitely gung-ho about our testing. They want to be involved for sure. Uh, and what about Orion as a, as a program? I mean, to go beyond low Earth orbit for the first time since, what, 1972. I mean, it's quite a, to be part of that seems, you know, it's quite a, a big, big deal. Yes. And in fact, so we're in a development program right now. And sometimes it's hard because I think I was expressing earlier that I spent a lot of time in meetings, right? But then when you step back and you look at the fact that we're going on a mission that nobody's ever been on before, we're going 40,000 miles you know, past the moon and we're coming in and reentering the atmosphere faster than it's ever happened before at higher speeds. And you're like, wow, I'm really a part of something amazing that's going to be huge for history. So that, that kind of keeps you going when you're like, oh, another meeting, really? It's very exciting. That's Melissa Jones, the NASA Landing and Recovery Director. Uh, David, I mean, what are your thoughts on, on Orion as a, as a spacecraft? Because, I mean, you know, it, it is basically a bigger version Looks of like Apollo. Apollo. <laughs> <laughs> like Apollo. Splashes down. Like, like Apollo. Apollo, yeah. Well, Apollo was a good design. It worked, and um, Orion's bigger and heavier, and it does need um, to have that approach because um, the space shuttle came back in a very different way. Um, So it needs that design, it needs that flat shield to keep the hot gas, the the shock wave, off the surface, and it works. And so there's no point in redesigning it because it does work. The question is it's bigger, uh, temperatures are a little higher. um, But the thing... Of, of Orion and the whole um, space launch system is the fact that it's quite old now. It's based on older technology, and it's also been underfunded. So the pace of testing and missions and testing that has been so slow uh, over the past 15 or 20 years. They really should have got this, what they're doing now, been doing this 10 years ago. And I think that's where we've an interesting situation with the, the entrepreneurs who are able to not 
uh, have heritage, not have a project they have to carry on with, but start from scratch and design something that uh, is more, if you like, evolved to do the job. I mean, Orion is a heavy-duty spacecraft. It will do the job, but it lands at sea. It's expensive, it's difficult, it's awkward. People want to land on the, on the ground these days. And the SLS isn't ready to take it there. Exactly. The, the, it all goes back to President Bush. Now, there are good space presidents and there are bad space presidents. I don't know what Trump is as a space president, but at least he's got the conversation going. Uh, Obama was a poor space president, but George Bush uh, Jr. was a good one. And he started off this consolation program, which had it, um, had it carried on, we would have had people on, on the moon now. Uh, but it was underfunded and they top-sliced it and that meant that after the first year it was a billion dollars behind schedule and, uh, you know, six months. And then after, if they keep on doing that, the project slows down so much that, as we see, 20 years later, you're testing things in dribs and drabs. So I think Orion and the SLS was a great missed opportunity. It shows that when you've got some sort of impetus, you've got to get on with it. You can't drag it out over 20 years and that's the lesson for Trump. He wants 2024, you're quite right, optimistic in the extreme. But if he gets something that goes with a bit more pace and oomph and has a heavyweight counterpart to the um, over-optimism of the, of, the, of the Elon Musks and the Bezos of this world, and he will have done a good thing. But you're quite right. Assuming he still he still is interested because there was yeah. that bizarre tweet saying oh. why is NASA going back to the moon, which appears to be based on something that was on Fox News a bit earlier. So yeah, yeah. one would hope that his enthusiasm for space, that comment was just a blip. Well, you'd, you'd hope that even if he doesn't stand or get elected, now who knows what on earth's going on in, with the American electorate, but if he could tag, if that mission could be tagged to his legacy. He might make it safer uh, and more able to go forward because that's that's the problem. As you both know, the problem is that you need a lot of money and it needs to be sustained. So you need something like, as in Kennedy's days, a goal that's difficult to attack, the legacy of a dead president. Um, if Trump finds a way to make this less... Uh, vulnerable than it has been in the past. You start it, you carry on, it gets cut back and goes nowhere. If he's done that, then he may actually turn out to be a good space president. So, good luck, Donald. <laughs> Never thought I'd hear that but, on our podcast. But, uh, but what, would, what would be fantastic is that at least one of the moonwalkers, so we've got what, Buzz Aldrin, uh, Charlie Duke, Dave Scott, Harrison Smith, at least one of them still alive when another person lands on the moon, and that person will probably be a woman. Could be. That would be good. Amen to that. Well, thank you very much indeed, um, David Whitehouse. His book, Apollo 11, The Inside Story, it's out now. Is that it right? It is, yes. Yeah. Yes. I'm very, very pleased that Amazon called it a bestseller. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, fantastic. Love it as well. Do catch up with us on social media. We've got a very exciting project coming up that we 
have yet to finish and we can't tell you about right now. Hopefully it will be finished on time. And it's I very think, much like I an Apollo deadline. I think people will be very excited when they yeah. hear about it as well. Yes. I know it's like zip, zip, yeah, it, zip. It is genuinely very exciting. It's cool. But it's, yeah, it will happen, I'm sure. Uh, next time, more on Apollo at 50. And we've got some really nice uh, previously unbroadcast interviews that we'll be as sharing with you. As opposed to unbroadcastable. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, we've got plenty of those as well. <laughs> <laughs> we, won't be, we won't be sharing those. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you very much for listening.